More than 200,000 New York City residents have Alzheimer's disease. And as the baby boomer generation ages, that number is sure to climb. One estimate says that by the year 2050, one in five New Yorkers will either have Alzheimer's or be caring for someone who does. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, what exactly is Alzheimer's disease? Are there warning signs? What about treatment? And how hard is it on caregivers? We'll work to answer those questions and many more with the help of a panel of experts. Joining me in the studio this morning is Llewellyn Barkin. Llewellyn is the president and CEO of the New York City chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Her dad and great-grandmother both suffered with Alzheimer's. Llewellyn is now enrolled in two clinical trials that study the disease. Llewellyn, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Also with us today is Dr. Angel Perez. Dr. Perez is conducting Alzheimer's research at Columbia Presbyterian's Taub Institute for Research in Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain. Dr. Perez, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And last but certainly not least, we welcome Anne Murray to Cityscape. Anne's father had Alzheimer's disease. She spent a lot of time caring for him in the years before his death and has a lot to offer from a caregiver's perspective. Anne, glad you're with us. Thank you. Most people know that Alzheimer's robs a person of their memory. But, Doctor, I want to start with you. Give us more insight into this disease. What is it exactly? Well, Alzheimer's disease is um, the first is um, dementia. It's the first cause of dementia in the United States. And this is a complex disease, probably in, related with environmental influences the gene. And we are studying this kind of disease regarding the um, incidence of the population in the um, Caribbean island and the United States. It, we compare it to kind of the the ethnic groups. The disease is um, it's this degenerative disease of the brain that they provoke a certain change in the behavior of the people and the memory change. One of the first symptoms of this disease is forgetting detail of the recent conversation. The patient lose all the ability to conduct a normal life, forgetting the, how handle their financial affairs. They lose things around the house, and they blame the other people for this issue. This is continued. The disease is the period of uh, between five to eight years. It's seen more in people than more than the 65 years old. And there is a two kinds of Alzheimer's disease. The early onset is the people who suffer this disease between the 30 and 65. The late onset is the people who suffer this disease more than the 65 years old. That's very important to point out because many people see Alzheimer's disease as an old person's disease, but you can get it in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Well, really, the case we see is more than the 35 years old. It's very small amount of people who suffer is more seen in people that are six, more than 65 years old. What I wanted to say is uh, Alzheimer's disease, this is dementia, cause of Alzheimer's disease, is, a, is not the normal pattern of the old people. It's a really the disease. Let me bring Llewellyn and Anne into the conversation. Llewellyn, your dad and your great-grandmother both had Alzheimer's disease. Did they have late-onset Alzheimer's? When my great-grandmother was in her 90s, and I was um, something like 10 years old, I went to visit her in a nursing home, and she had what we then called senile dementia, which many of us were familiar with, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And now we know that to be not just normal aging, but really 
Alzheimer's disease, a progressive physical illness, and we believe that going forward there'll be treatments and cures and maybe even prevention for this disease. My great-grandmother, now that I'm older and I know, had Alzheimer's disease. We didn't have any of it in the next generations going forward until my dad got sick. And, you know, as uh, the doctor explained to you, of the all dementias, which is the larger category, 50% of those are Alzheimer's disease. And my dad started with some of the same symptoms that were just described. You know, he was upset with my mother when he made mistakes with the checkbook. He was sending out checks to charities he didn't have any relationship with. He'd forget where he was driving periodically and end up in the wrong place. And my mother started to notice that. But in the days when my dad got sick, the diagnostics were very different, and many people really were not able to diagnose Alzheimer's with the same level of accuracy that we're able to do today. So they weren't really sure what he had. Over time, we discovered as this disease progressed with my dad, he also had a series of small strokes. And then we were able to diagnose that he had vascular dementia. So I think my father probably had a combination of both. But in any case, clearly disease progressed. He died when he was 88. And he, while he was quite demented when he actually died, um, and he lasted quite a long time in that condition, very hard on my mom. And how old was he when he was first diagnosed? Well, he was first diagnosed, um, he was probably in his late se- mid to late 70s when he was first diagnosed. His disease really progressed over a period of close to 12 years. And my mother was his primary caregiver, and it was extremely hard on her. Doctor, let's talk about how this disease is diagnosed. I would imagine there are a lot of things you have to rule out before you can say, and I would think you can't say definitively, ever that this is Alzheimer's disease? Well, first what we do is to try to do three things. The medical assessment, the neuropsych test, and get the, the sample of blood. One time when we see the patients, we try to say, is the patient demented or not demented? If it's demented, why can't the dementia is, is, is suffer the, the patient? We have all the can, many kinds of dementia, the most frequently is uh, Alzheimer's disease. There's all the kind of dementia that is a low body disease, frontotemporal dementia, and vascular dementia. It's a thin line to differentiate each of these dementia. Today, with the more information that we have, more patients, more people is participating in our study, we have certainly points to differentiate each of these diseases. At the beginning of the, the disease, we don't know what kind of dementia is. In the next two or three years, we arrive to the right diagnosis according to the new symptoms that the patient is suffering. Anne Murray is with us. Anne's dad also had Alzheimer's disease. How old was your dad when he was diagnosed? He was probably about 74, um, and it's just so subtle. It comes on slowly, and you see you know, small things happening, and you're not quite sure if there's something really wrong, if it's natural aging, if it's just nothing. Um, but he was probably about seven. He was 74 when my mother had taken him to a neurologist, and they said that he was probably as a result of several small strokes um, suffering from dementia. Was he aware of what was happening? Yeah which is what made it um, so much more difficult because he did know what was going on. And that was, um, he was not a patient person. And when he saw things that weren't going right in his life, he would get so angry because he knew that this was something that was out of his control. Llewellyn, was that also the case with your dad and your great-grandmother? Absolutely. I mean, I can't speak to my great-grandmother, but my dad was probably the nicest man that ever lived. You know, he was a professional athlete, his own business in later years, very successful, very happy guy, good, great guy. 
golfer. And he never really had a temper at home. And suddenly my mom would call, and she was actually frightened because something would happen, and he'd get so angry and upset with her that she needed to call us and let us know. That was definitely one of the first symptoms that we were start to be very concerned about. Even trouble with communicating. Someone may say, can you get me that thing for my mouth, referring to a toothbrush. That was something my dad did a lot. My father used to call everybody honey. He was a, uh, you know, a man of a different era and often used to say, hey, honey, and it was for anyone who looked like a woman. Um, he'd say, hey, pal, to a lot of men because he couldn't really remember their names. Or, and he would call lots of things it or get me that thing. And that was another way for us to say, gee, he seems to have forgotten a lot of words. Very uncharacteristic. How do you discuss this with someone who is developing this disease, who is still able to determine there's something wrong with me? When we, my dad got sick, he, unlike Anne's um, father, my father really resisted any kind of diagnosis. Um, he claimed he was just depressed and angry because he'd retired. Couldn't, his golf wasn't as good anymore. And that was part of why he was not feeling well. But so over time, in some ways it was harder, but I think in some ways it was easier. He progressed gradually, and as his physical condition got more debilitated, it was easier for us to deal with him, and he was a nice man. He became sweeter and sweeter as he got sicker and sicker until the very end. How about you, Anne? How did you deal with it in your family? It was a a process, and um, I remember one of the times just trying to keep my father involved in things because a lot of times he would pull back, become very isolated, um, and get him to play solitaire on the computer. I mean, he didn't know how to use a computer, but it was just to try to keep him stimulated. And one of the things at the early stages he tried to do, he had one of those little um, recording devices, and he would just speak into that to try to remember words. And um, and, and then gradually he just stopped. But Anything that we could do to just pull him into discussion and, you know, kind of test him. But gradually, as it gets worse, then, you know, you just can't. You wrote an essay about your experiences with your dad and his Alzheimer's disease. Can you read that for us? Sure. Um, This was uh, as part of a writing course I took. And because, as Llewellyn said, Alzheimer's really involves the whole family and it overtakes your life. So in terms of topics, it was um, one of the topics that was most pressing for me at that point. But I uh, this is an abridged version, but I, I called it Before We Forget. At 78, he is slowly fading away. He wasn't always this way. When he retired 13 years ago, he was the treasurer of Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. He was a financial whiz whose career had spanned more than 40 years. He was smart, opinionated, and admired by all who knew him. He loved to discuss and to debate any topic. Now he's silent too often, listening with a vacant stare, the words round him drawing no reaction. He can't complete a sentence. He doesn't know my name. Alzheimer's disease has no cure. No drug currently available will bring back my father. My father has been robbed of his capacity to read and comprehend. Many times I'll find him seated in a chair, staring at a bank financial statement, turning it over and over, knowing the figures are familiar. It's as if he hopes that by looking at the page long enough, he will be able to unlock some key and his powers of recall will return. Finally, he gives up with quiet despair, gets out of his chair and returns to his aimless ambling about the house. His confident stride has been replaced with a halting shuffle. He's lost with no responsibilities other than washing the dishes and taking out the garbage. He moves from room to room, blankly staring out the window. When my siblings and I come for a visit, he stands to the side, recognizing us and glad for the company. A few nonspecific words dribble from his lips at first, and then he retreats to his silence. We worry about the stress on my mother as primary caretaker. 
We worry that if anything should happen to her, my father won't be able to contact anyone. He can't dial the phone. He doesn't know our phone numbers. He wouldn't know who to ask for even if he was able to dial a number. I knew my father had reached a point of no return about two years ago. I received a phone call from a priest in my parents' parish. He apologized for the call and apologized that he needed to make me aware of a recent situation involving my father. My father had always been a reader in church and took great pride in that role. I remember his upright posture, head high, taking long strides to the lectern, relishing his role as the bearer of God's word to his fellow parishioners. His voice was never loud, but he always spoke confidently and with precision. And this particular Sunday, the priest told me that my father had read in a very low, timid, almost childlike voice. He stumbled over words and lost his place throughout the reading, and upon completion shuffled from the pulpit, broken, back to his seat. That was the first time I really felt that we were losing my father. As long as the problem remained within the family, we could handle the situation and pretend that he wasn't really deteriorating. Having the outside world coldly confirm his growing incapacity was like an icy sword, cold reality plunging us into a new era. For my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, we gathered at a local restaurant, just the immediate family, as my father cannot handle more than that. It was my father who felt the need for a speech. Rising slowly and unsteadily from his chair, he called for everyone's attention. In a halting, breaking voice, he delivered his own proclamation, acknowledging that he knew he was no longer the man he had been in the past, but confirming that he was still part of his family and his surroundings. He strained to speak, and we had to guess at much of what he tried to say, but we understood his meaning. In spite of all he had lost, for one moment of clarity, he let us know that he was still with us. In this act of desperation and courage, he reminded us of the man he was and the man he continues to be. Anne-Marie's dad had Alzheimer's disease. She spent a lot of time caring for him leading up to his death. Did your father die of Alzheimer's? No, he actually died of cancer, um, which in some respects to us was almost a blessing um, because we didn't have to see him further deteriorate. We had, after I wrote this, we had put him in a Alzheimer's facility. Um, and unlike the current film, Away From Her, where she went willingly, he did not. <laughs> and it was torture for him in many respects, and it was torture for us to watch him. But he had gotten to a point where he could no longer stay at home. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. In addition to Anne Murray, we're also joined in studio this morning by Llewellyn Barkin. Llewellyn is the president and CEO of the New York City chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Her father and great-grandmother both had Alzheimer's disease. And with us is Dr. Angel Perez. He is conducting Alzheimer's research at Columbia Presbyterian's Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's disease and the aging brain. Llewellyn, Alzheimer's, though, is a fatal disease, correct? Alzheimer's is a physical illness that progresses. There is, as you know, no treatment, no cure, no prevention, and people die certainly with Alzheimer's disease. But typically what happens is the body shuts down as the disease progresses. So often people don't die specifically of Alzheimer's, but they die of other conditions along the way. My dad, for example, much like Anne's father, actually developed kidney cancer. And, you know, we could say today that he died of kidney cancer, knowing that the prior 12 years were really the dementia progressing over a long period of time. We know that's why his body shut down. No treatment and no cures. But, doctor, what kinds of things are available to people with Alzheimer's disease? Medicines, therapies? We have uh, some kind of medicine. Aricef, Namenda, Exelon. It's a this kind of medicine is not cure the patient. It's, um, we can consider that preventive medication. 
but we have something to treat the patients. One of the best advice that we have to the patients um, um, to suffer the Alzheimer's disease is keeping working and keeping reading. Not only the patient that they, uh, they suffer Alzheimer's, also the patient have more than the, the, per, the people, I'm sorry, they have more than the 65 years old. In the meantime, we don't have any kind of prevention. And that is one of our goals in our study, try to create the way to prevent the disease and to treat the disease. Now let's talk more about the research that you're conducting. What specifically are you doing? We conducted a study for almost 10 years. And what we try to do is looking for risk factor associated with Alzheimer's disease. And we hope that the, we find some gene related with Alzheimer's disease. So right now we can't say whether Alzheimer's is hereditary. Yes, certainly points, yes. And there is other risk factor that is cooperating with uh, the disease. What are the other risk factors? I understand that even high cholesterol could be considered a risk factor. Already we have uh, four genes, you know, four genes related with Alzheimer's disease. One of them is a risk factor. It's related with a high cholesterol and the cardiovascular disease. What about things like cooking with aluminum pots and pans? I often hear that that could potentially contribute to Alzheimer's disease. That was an old theory. That is not affected anymore. Llewellyn, let me turn to you because you are now taking part in two clinical trials. That's correct. Looking into Alzheimer's disease. Why did you decide to take that step? Well, you know, you mentioned my great-grandmother and my father, but what you don't know is that my daughter's, my daughter's father-in-law died when he was 54 of Alzheimer's disease, died of what we call the early-onset form of the disease. He was a physician. He became ill when he was 48, and he was sick for six years. Uh, my daughter has a five-and-a-half-year-old child, one of my three granddaughters, and if the disease is genetic um, and there's some way that we can help with the research to create a better life for Jillian and for Chris, my daughter's husband, my son-in-law, I'm certainly interested in that. That's one reason. The other reason is that in my job as the CEO and president of the Alzheimer's Association New York City chapter, part of my job is really to incent the public to get interested in this and to take action. And, you know, being involved in a clinical trial is a great way to take action because not everybody can afford to donate millions of dollars or even a little bit of money, and not everybody can afford to give a lot of time to volunteer. And this is one way that with a very small investment of time and really no investment of money, people can really make a difference. And science will only progress in this country if people are willing to step up. And there are lots of studies that are appropriate. So I felt for both those reasons, this was a good time for me to do this. Is taking part, though, in these clinical trials emotionally draining? I would imagine that you're undergoing tests that really are taxing your brain, you know, putting certain numbers together or trying to remember certain words. I would think if you aren't meeting that challenge, it could be hard for you. You could think, oh my goodness, do I have this? Absolutely right. Very scary. Um, when I was in the clinical trial, and Dr. Press remembers this, I was very anxious in the beginning, and that may in fact affect performance. But I think that what was interesting for me at the end was how well I did in areas where I would not have expected to do as well. Um, in any case, it's, it really, if I wasn't doing well, well, maybe that's information I need, and I need it now before I get into a category of aging where this becomes a real issue. So I think for a lot of different reasons, this is really an extraordinary opportunity for me personally and also professionally. Uh, overcoming the anxiety was part of the contribution to the clinical trial. And are you concerned that Alzheimer's may surface again in your family? Sure. 
and you know, especially as you get older and the natural process of aging where you, you know, start to forget certain things or the words don't come as quickly. Um, you know, you think, you know, is this the beginning of, of something? And, you know, you, you don't know. I'm, I'm not as courageous as Llewellyn to go through that process yet, but um, I think you always worry about it. I think a lot of people are worried about it, especially, you know, in their 40s and 50s, starting to um, have more difficulties with just daily life and thinking, is this something that will impact me sooner rather than later? I know there was a recent study conducted on mice, and that study found that mice who did have a certain type of dementia, I guess, uh, exposed to a lot of activity, they regained some of their memory. Is that promising? I think one of the things that we know at the New York City chapter of the Alzheimer's Association is that we're not set up in our society in any way to deal with the large numbers of people who are going to live much longer. Um, we're typically set up in a society where I still have friends who are retiring at the age of 60. Well, you know, 60 today, many of us, myself included, who are older than 60 are working full-time in very demanding jobs. And as, you know, we discussed, that's one way to keep your mind active and possibly to ward off Alzheimer's disease. We're not entirely sure that's correct, but we certainly think there's indications. So part of what we need to do in general is to heighten public awareness to the idea that people need to stay in life. They need to be part of the world. They need to find things that are not just interesting, but that are interesting to them personally. Because the issue of engagement is what I would call the core issue. Doing something that we like and that we're really engaged in, whether it's gardening or horseback riding or you know just reading and taking classes, is really important. Because if people are doing this in a superficial way, it's not going to help them grow whatever cells they need to keep their brains alive. And have you changed your life because of your father's diagnosis, do you try to keep your mind more busy than you may have otherwise? I try the crossword puzzle. I don't do that very well. But but I, I think, as Llewellyn had said, I mean, I really believe the engagement, but almost more the social engagement, is critical because my father went from retiring at 65 to in a very busy schedule to gardening and staying around the house, which he loved. But he didn't have enough social interaction, I think, to keep him stimulated. And I think you have to do the things you love, but you also have to be involved with people. And, and I do try to focus on that. If you go online and you look up Alzheimer's disease, there are so many different websites to weed through, so many different recommendations. Some talk about herbal remedies and dietary supplements, things like vitamin E and ginkgo biloba. What do we make of all of this? You know, the New York City chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, we believe you should call us first. We're very clear. Um, our website is www.alznyc.org. Make that call first to us. Look us up on the website. And then we'll give you some sense of where the right, what the next step should be. The next step should always be a really well-done diagnosis with an appropriate assessment center. And certainly New York City and many of the large urban areas in the country were really blessed with an enormous number of scientists and research centers and doctors, clinicians who are interested in this. And, you know, there's a good reason for that. I mean, there's going to be, we think, as many as 16 million Americans with this disease. And as you mentioned earlier, 5% of those are going to live in New York City. So that there's a tremendous economic opportunity for individuals who are investing in medications, whether they're prevention, treatment, or cure. And for those people who are involved with setting up activities and organizations around this issue, we'll be able to show you from the New York City chapter what are the ones that really have efficacy. Where do we really want to send people? Because sometimes people waste an awful lot of time, you know, pretending in some fantasy world that they know more than they really do. And that's a little scary for us. 
Let's focus a little bit more attention on caregiving because caregivers are really the second victims when it comes to this disease. It's a lot to take care of someone emotionally and physically. I understand bathing is particularly challenging. My father was, he kept up, you know, taking showers um, for most of the time that he lived at home. And then finally, when he went into the facility, they would have people that that helped him. So how it was for him there, I don't know. Um, you know, he did stop shaving, they, but they would take care of it there. I, I think it, it's important when they're in the facility that they appear to look as, as you know, well as possible. And they do have people that, that help make sure that happens. My, in my case, my mom was the primary caregiver, and then as my father's disease progressed, we hired someone to help her. And there was no question that personal grooming was a big part of that job. I mean, we had special equipment that was installed in the shower so my father could sit during the shower, towel bars so he wouldn't slip. And this um, first my mother and then my, this woman took great care of him and made sure that you know he was properly groomed and looked appropriate when he went out. Very, very important. How big of a problem is wandering? We often hear stories of people with Alzheimer's disease walking away from their homes and getting lost. And in a city like New York, I would imagine that can be pretty devastating. It's a devastating problem. And what we tell people when they call the New York City chapter is anyone with dementia can wander at any time. And that the idea that you can sort of do a probability study on this is a terrible problem and a big mistake. And we recommend as soon as somebody has a diagnosis of dementia that they call the New York City chapter and that register in our Safe Return program. And Safe Return program is a remarkable low-tech program that really saves lives. And in New York City, as you can imagine, where we certainly have problems, we also have a dedicated detective, NYPD, who works closely with us to help us find not only New Yorkers, but people who wander across state lines, which is why Safe Return is a national program. It's a national program so that if you're registered, you go into a database that is a national database, and should you wander, alerts go out throughout the country, not just the city, to ensure that they have the maximum opportunity to find somebody. If somebody's found within the first 24 to 36 hours, there's about a 98% chance that we can save someone's life. After 48 hours, there's the, the odds reduce to about 50%. And in fact, if we find people, they are often either deceased or very badly injured, which you know is really tragic because we can do so much good with this simple program. It's difficult for immediate family, and it can be sometimes uncomfortable but for those around you, friends, other family, it can be very uncomfortable. Did either of you find that people started to shy away from you or didn't come over to the house because they didn't know how to deal with this? For my mother, that, that happened a lot. Even family members. They, and when my father went into the facility, people wouldn't visit him. It's kind of like he's lost already. And they really don't know what to say. And and it's difficult with the person who has Alzheimer's because you don't know what they'll say. Um, they'll try to speak and it makes no sense. Um, and it's it's an uncomfortable situation for, for everybody. And the sad thing is that that just continues the decline because there's less and less social interaction. My mom was very um, interested in keeping my father in the world socially, recognizing that the kind of social isolation that Anne describes could be very damaging. But what was very difficult in a way was that she was embarrassed by my father's condition. You know, and early in the process when she would dress him up to go out to dinner with friends, um, she really didn't want to acknowledge that he was really ill. I think there's, for some period of time, 
Alzheimer's disease was perceived as a mental illness, or at least similar to a mental illness. And for that reason, people felt as if they'd done something wrong and made a mistake along the way. And I think that one of the great messages that we carry in the New York City chapter, this is a physical illness. No one did anything wrong here. This happens to people the same way that people become ill with other diseases. And that kind of acknowledgement allows people to reach out as long as possible and retain the kind of social engagement that Anne's describing as being so important. Llewellyn, we talked about the warning signs of Alzheimer's disease, but what are the warning signs that a caregiver is burning out? We tell people all the time that in order to care for someone else, you have to care for yourself. One of the hardest things that we had to do with my mom was to get her to take any kind of respite. She perceived that this was her job. She was very diligent and dedicated in doing it and really felt depressed and uncomfortable about leaving the house to go out and do anything. And just getting her out to lunch when I used to go down and visit my parents was very difficult. Nevertheless, we continue to give people that message. And what we have in New York City are 150 support groups with professionally trained support group leaders that the Alzheimer's Association New York City chapter has a tremendous amount of responsibility for maintaining the quality of those groups. Those are exactly the kind of respite in some ways that people need. It's connected enough to be part of the job they're doing, but also reinforces the message that they need physical exercise, they need to eat correctly, they need to get medications themselves if they're depressed, and make sure that they see their own doctors. Llewellyn Barkin, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Llewellyn Barkin is the president and CEO of the New York City chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Her dad and great-grandmother both suffered with Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Angel Perez, thank you for coming in. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Dr. Perez is conducting Alzheimer's research at Columbia Presbyterian's Taub Institute for Research in Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain. And Llewellyn, before I thank Anne, why don't you give your website one more time? Our website is www.alznyc.org. Okay, and I want to thank Anne Murray for coming in and sharing her story. Her dad suffered with Alzheimer's disease, and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, and thanks for doing this piece. I think it's really important. And that brings us to the close of this week's Cityscape. Archives of the show are available at wfuv.org. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.